you do like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Murdocracy, a podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Sammy, you're sounding a bit different this week. Where are you right now? <laughs> All right. So this has been my life, right? Yeah, as you know, Melbourne's lockdown ended last week. Uh-huh. Um, Melbournians, we have, we have been let loose and set free and we really enjoyed it. And this week, we were finally allowed to leave metropolitan Melbourne and go back to regional Victoria for holidays, etc. Thank you, Dictator so, Dan. <laughs> absolutely. You know, the Dictator really, really came through. And so, you know, my partner and I, we booked a really lovely uh, Airbnb on oh. uh, Phillip Island. Really nice. And we drove here all the way, got here just mm-hmm. in time to be caught in a massive storm. Whoa. The likes of which hasn't been seen in a while. Um, howling winds, just <gasps> wretched rain. Um, the power goes out in 34 buildings in on Ooh. Phillip Island, oh one of them God. being our Airbnb. Oh. So <laughs> I am currently recording this podcast from my car <laughs> because cars provide kind of a soundproof studio. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the Airbnb itself is too much howling sounds for me to record the podcast there. I'm tethered to my phone on my laptop and uh, that phone battery is whatever I have is all I have because once (laughs) that dies, that dies. (laughs) So yeah, I am basically glamping at this point inadvertently and uh, coming to you as a makeshift studio as I possibly can. We are podcasting in extreme conditions today. (laughs) Absolutely. We bring you medocracy come rail, hail, sun or shine. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing can stop us. So today for Mm. this episode, we will be talking to a current news Corp employee, Jane Hansen, about a really interesting campaign that I've often been fascinated about, which is their No Jab, No Play campaign. Uh, this has been, uh, they've done over the last couple of years, and it's about getting vaccine uptake. We've talked a bit about, uh, you know, certain aspects of uh, mm-hmm. the empire that has been uh, less keen on vaccines at point, but I do think it's, a, it's an interesting kind of counterpoint to see, you know, the ways that News Corp can use its its power, um, not you know, sometimes I think for quite a good cause. Well, and one of the things we've mentioned before is how you know News Corp internally has been very strict on vaccine uptake, you know, and on making sure staff and employees and everyone are taking on the vaccine. And it's just been some of the pronouncements of uh, commentators externally that draw shade upon that internal, mm. um, uh, you know, policy. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, why there's also been this massive campaign campaign for years now for Mm. boosters and all of these things and to help with vaccination overall and you know no doubt will have an influence on their audience yeah absolutely and hey just one other thing before we kick off into the episode we've been doing this now for about two months uh you know it it takes i mean like i'll pull back the curtain takes me somewhere between you know six and ten hours a week to pull it all together um so what we're going to do just to keep on you know doing this to make it sustainable is we want to launch a patreon which 
if you are someone who is keen to see the show keep on going, you can just chip in a few dollars. Uh, it won't be much. We'll keep. I think we're just going to keep everything free. I don't even think that we're going to do anything particularly different for people who are choosing support. But I figured, you know, if people like what they're what we're doing, um, they can, you know, give us. A, I guess I like a little bit of pocket change that can help us even do things like, you know, pay for the hosting, uh, which is something that we have to do, um, and that kind of stuff. So we will pop the Patreon in the show notes. Uh, we're passing the, I guess, the, the hat around. And if you do feel um, generous enough and want to keep it going, yeah, please uh, think about donating. Absolutely, because we love doing this and, and, and oh, yeah. we want to keep doing it. And, and it just it, it doesn't cost a lot of money to do this, but it does cost a little bit. And it costs a lot of time to do this. So if, if you like this podcast and want to support it, please throw some shekels our way. We would really appreciate it. And hey, look, you know, maybe if things go well, we can uh, be as uh, doing as well as News Corp is, which we'll talk about in just a second for our News Corp News of the Week. Hey, Sammy, business is booming. This Mm -hmm. week, executive chairman of News Corp, Rupert Murdoch, you might have heard of him. Never heard heard the name. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I mean, it sounds a bit familiar, I think. uh, When we go on, you'll you'll recognize it. All right. Okay. Maybe Uh, I'll recall. Yeah. (laughs) uh, He announced that News Corp, the global News Corp, has had its most profitable year yet. Uh, Revenues went up 4% over the fiscal year 2021, including a huge 30% up in the last quarter, I'm going to throw a few like little interesting tidbits at you that I um that just jumped out to me. The first one was that we've talked about the relationship between News Corp and the digital giants, Facebook and Google, and the financial mm-hmm. relationships they had. I think this is just saying something that they've said before publicly, but just reconfirming the the digital arrangements that they have. So you know, these agreements that pay the money. Um, Robert Thompson, the CEO, said that they are clearly in the nine figures. So that's in the tens of millions of dollars a year. And uh, they are a significant revenue for the company. So, you know, again, this shows that things are going pretty well for them in terms of their relationship with, uh, with tech. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And this is one of those things where it wasn't a revenue stream that was available to them up until two years ago, even. Um, so it's an entirely new revenue stream. And some would argue a revenue stream that is largely self-generating because they didn't have to create exclusive content or create a new platform to cater to that stream. This is just their content that they put on air, their print newspapers that are the digital editions of or their, their YouTube clips, etc. from, you know, the Sky News. And all of these being streamed or being used on Facebook, on Google, on these platforms is now bringing them extra money. And it's a lot like the uh, comedian friends I have who during lockdown were getting JobKeeper, for example, and, you know, money that they normally wouldn't get you know, when lockdown isn't happening and suddenly realize they're earning more money than they ever have before in their careers just from JobKeeper. So it's largely the same principle, but on a much, 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 much larger scale, of course. Speaking of digital, uh, they saw their digital subscribers in the fourth quarter after some of their um, regional papers went digital only. They stopped printing. They saw them go up 25%. It was a move that they called bold and necessary. Mm-hmm. Paying subscribers for their uh, streaming services. So that's KO, Flash, Binge, and I'm missing one. What's the fourth one? It's, <laughs> there's so many they've got now. There's a fourth one? Yeah, there's Chaos a fourth one. Yeah, I, I remember this. There's definitely four 
like, did I say KO already? Anyway. Yeah, you said KO, right. Yes. Okay, well, okay. They've, they've got so many we can't even remember. They're up right. 40%, that's paying subscribers, um, with more than 2 million streaming subscribers in total. And they said that's a 155% year-on-year increase, which is interesting because that's a difference between how many people they have paying and how many people they have using the services. Seems pretty big to me. And that will continue to go up as well. If you think about how streaming platforms are still, you know, being taken up by Australians at a rate that's slower than, for example, in North America or in um, in UK and Canada. And so as a result, you know, when more and more people get onto streaming platforms, those numbers will continue to rise for them. They haven't plateaued yet, um, as, for example, Netflix might have plateaued in America. Another part of the News Corp empire that we haven't covered yet, but I'm very interested in, is their stake or, or ownership of the REA group, which mm. includes things like realestate.com.au, flatmates.com.au, you it has always been profitable for the company but it's continuing to print money with revenue growth of 27 percent again so like you know that that's that is you know like in the past when newspapers used to have their classified sections they've spun it off but it is still so profitable you know what all of this tells me at the very least they can send some money to our patreon because they really rupert can definitely afford this All that good news was all the more reason to celebrate as the Festival of Rupert continued at his 90th birthday party in New York City this week. That's his second birthday party for those people following at home. So after his UK celebrations, uh, his US celebrations in New York were attended by Henry Kissinger, Mike Pompeo, Mike Bloomberg, um, James Murdoch. So that's the son who has been more critical of News Corp and its media empire and their Mm -hmm. environmental impact. He was invited, but he didn't go to the UK party. Lachlan Murdoch, on the other hand, the kind of uh, prodigal son who is appearing to be the favoured one taking over, uh, you know, aspects like Fox News and, and that kind of thing, he is expected to attend. Sammy, I have a really important question. If you were invited, what would you get for Rupert Murdoch? A box to put everything in? Um, I mean, well, okay, so for starters, I was thinking about this. James Murdoch is probably going to turn up but and then rap, right? Like, that's what we're expecting. Mm. He's uh, he's going to perform a rap um, at the party, like a surprise one. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is, as a present for Rupert Murdoch, what do you possibly get? And I think what you get is a collected edition of all the episodes of Murdocracy on a flash drive mm, and mm. just, you know, be like, this is the only thing that really will truly speak to your heart. And I think, mm. he, you know, he will see the wisdom of that and give us lots of money. We're some of his biggest fans in a way. You know, we closely follow what he does. We're up there with Henry Kissinger, Mike Pompeo and Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. What a party. What what, what cocktail conversation Imagine would be happening? Yeah. Oh my God. To be a fly on every wall at that party. Our invitations must have just gotten lost in the mail somewhere. I guess we have the borders closed at the moment, so it's that's pretty the only reason. It's the yeah. only reason. They didn't otherwise, want to invite for sure. us to make us feel bad for not being yeah, able yeah, yeah. to attend. I get it. Well, you you put me on the spot. What's what present will you get, Rupert, when eventually the festivities make their way to Australia? Oh, I don't know. Like uh, <laughs> the blood mm. of a young person to extend his life. <laughs> Isn't that what they do? Like it's um it's Peter Thiel who is that 
uh, Silicon Valley yes, investor right. who's, part, you know, I think he's on the board of Facebook, very controversial, um, you know, it was a big fan of Trump in 2016 and got behind him publicly, one of the few tech bros who initially did get behind him. He actually has a startup or he's back to startup. That <laughs> he's literally doing that, like is trying to use the, like, the blood of young people to extend people's lives, which I'm pretty sure is just like the, the plot of, uh, of a, uh, a horror movie, right? <laughs> I'm I'm quite sure there's a scene in Brave New World if memory serves. But yeah, oh, it's yeah. we've definitely ended up in that kind of place. And look, Rupert Murdoch at the at, you know, for starters, the fact that he's 90 and still you know, let's be honest, as far as we've heard and can tell, still the head of the organization and still in terms kicking. of involvement. Yeah, still very much kicking, still very much, you know, pointing them in directions that they need to go and stuff. It's uh, when you watch TV shows like Succession and you see how the patriarch is presented there. And then you look at Rupert Murdoch's life and you look at... You know, the, Brian Cox might not even, despite his amazing performance, be having a shade of the level of authority and, and strength that Rupert Murdoch apparently is still able to wield. Yeah. I, and look, you know, maybe there's something there. You know, Henry Kissinger, Rupert Murdoch have lived very long. And, you know, all, all people around them have seemed to, you know, start to die of old age. But mm. something, I don't know what it is. I'm, I don't know Destroying if you can other people's <laughs> lives really oh. makes yours better. It really does, it turns out. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> uh, speaking... I didn't say who did it. <laughs> um, well, Rupert Murdoch uh, was mm-hmm. one of the first people to get the COVID-19 vaccine, and he has extended that requirement or that desire to get people vaccinated to the company News Corp in Australia from 2022 will not allow anyone who has been not who has not been vaccinated for COVID-19 to go into their buildings according to the Guardian's Amanda Mead. Look, I have to say, um, you know, I haven't heard actually as much from the fringes of News Corp recently about the kind of vaccine scepticism or hesitancy. Mm -hmm. I do think that's partly because that, uh, in a way, that kind of um, a fight, I think, is increasingly behind us. But this just is, you know, another sign about how the companies is very willing to let their host freelance and do whatever it takes to get that audience, you know, that specific audience to inspire fear in them, to keep them watching and engaged. But when it comes to doing business, they absolutely believe in the science that they don't muck around. What? Okay, so here's my question to you. Do you see this as a sign of editorial independence and a victory for editorial independence? The fact that, you know, they're commentators are free to say what they want regardless of what internal policy or is this you know more cynically a manipulative attempt at getting far right and and fringe audience members despite you know having a a certain mandate internally it's a good question i tend to think that their ability to promote things is really just linked to their viability as an entertainer, because that's what, you know, mm-hmm. that's what you know, we're going to talk to, to Jane Hansen in a little bit, who is a reporter who is reporting on the facts. 
um, she's not an entertainer in the same way that someone like Andrew Bolt is or their columnist star. At the end of the day, yes. you know, they are trying to get people to to pay attention to what they're doing. And yeah, of course, like I'm sure they like the influence and that kind of influence in itself reinforces them as a kind of entertaining body because, you know, you want to pay attention to them because, you know, what they say and do has consequences for the real world. Like, you know, they're not completely out of touch. If they were, I don't think they'd be as entertaining. I think that, you know, in a way there is an editorial independence as in, you know, they mm-hmm. can clearly go past what the company is doing. Then they're not required to stick to these these few lines of discussion. That being said, like you can have editorial independence, but depending on who you hire changes the kind of position that you have as a company so that's not saying that like you know news corp is editorial independence so you know next week on sky news we're going to see a, a show hosted by a communist and they're going to talk right, about all yeah, their yeah. ideas about you know seizing the means of production what they do is they figured out what works for them it tends to skew right particularly on things like sky news and mm-hmm. that kind of um i guess viewpoint also aligns the fact that they are a business and, you know, they they generally tend to be kind of pro-business points of view, but also just proven ways of bringing people in and keeping them engaged with their stuff. I think it's all about, you know, it's all about the money. Right. I, I think all of this kind of points to the final conclusion of give us a TV show, you cowards. Absolutely. Um, to, prove, to prove your editorial independence, give Sammy and Cam a TV show, Murdocracy, the broadcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they should have actually. So one thing I didn't mention at the, the 90th celebrations, they did mm. a video for the last one and they're doing a video for this one as well. And I say, you know, why don't they uh, outsource it to us? I think we'd have a great crack at it. <laughs> Absolutely, as I sit here in a car, pretending to my <laughs> phone battery on on Phillip Island, I am all about production capabilities. I can assure you, Sammy. That's just because you're recording from the ground. You know, you're that's salt of the earth that's among the people. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, another mm. little scoop from Amanda Mead, the Australian, the you know, the coal loving Australian, the the voice of big business in Australia. Is the, who described it as the New York Times of Australia very oh, recently? <laughs> that was uh, that was actually a, a, a Jeff Tempicky who we had on the uh, right. on the That's podcast right. who who was did get a bit of blowback from that. Sorry, for people who can't remember, we had um, Jeff Tempicky. He is a climate reporter from New York, uh, and he wrote about uh, Rupert Murdoch and News Corp and how they the company embraced climate change, mm-hmm. but uh, you know their host hadn't. And one thing that drew a little bit of ire was that when he described the Australian. As the New York Times of, of Australia and uh, I think that had people uh, a little bit rolled up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as it, was a, it is a national broadsheet of the country, yeah. whether you like it or not. So yeah, yeah. yes. I think that's maybe where the similarities ends. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> the Australian is looking to launch a youth paper called mm. The Oz. So that's the OZ. Oh, all right. News Corp is advertising right now for a senior digital designer and social media staff for what they call an energetic startup and they're offering the opportunity to design the brand from scratch according to ads on seek.com.au. There are a few cues, Amanda writes, to what the content is planned, but the ad says the design style is bold and refined. It certainly is a bold idea to attract a young audience to what is traditionally seen as a brand for old white men, end quote. 
Sammy, if you were the editor of the Oz, the, the youth Oz, what mm-hmm. kind of, what kind of uh, uh, angle would you take? What kind of stories would you like to run? Yeah, that's the interesting thing, right? Like, how do you run stories that are not really appealing to, at what their own words are, old white men, um, and therefore appeal to the only other audience that they can probably hope to attract, which is young white men. So it's really <laughs> just down to that. Um, I might be the wrong person to answer this question. But here's the thing I find interesting. The, the name The Oz mm-hmm. has a storied history in Australia already. Um, and I was a bit surprised by the name that they've chosen. So if you don't know Oz, O-Z, um, mm-hmm. was a alternative counterculture independent magazine published in in the UK and in Australia simultaneously oh. uh, and it was published uh, between from I think 1969 to 1973 and um, the editors of that were very famously Richard Neville Richard Walsh and Martin Sharp all three of whom oh by the way and the London version the reason I learned about this in the first place the London version was founded by Jim Anderson who's very famous as well and so they were the first ever obscenity or, or maybe not first ever Sorry, the last obscenity trial in the UK and in Australia where they were found guilty and they had to stop publishing the magazine because all the editors pleaded guilty to it uh, because they were just that bold with their satire. The, I think the main picture, though, controversial one was the editors kind of weeing over a um, uh, on the corner of some building in, I think, Parliament in Sydney. Uh, and. Okay. Um, and yeah, it was the thing, but like, you know, the, the name of the Oz magazine or Oz at least is, is, is old and it is known and it has a history. So I was quite surprised to see them go with this name because I'm sure the copyright isn't there and maybe it's been long enough. People don't remember, but uh, it's still, you know, got a, an edgy history to it, which is kind of cool. Maybe that's them trying to tap into that. You know, the idea that they say if you're if you're like, you know, in your 20s and you're not on the left, you don't have a heart. And if you're in your 30s and you're not on the right, you don't have a brain. Like they're yeah. trying to what was in the past that kind of, you know, uh, people who, who were young and considered themselves like quite progressive. But as time has moved on and they've, you know, gotten jobs, gotten houses, mm-hmm. settled down, come to their senses, as some people would say, <laughs> they've then suddenly, you know, tap a little bit close to the right you know they're like why do we have to do so much on on climate change and you know i'm pretty worried i think it's i think it's interesting i i and uh, you know a lot of people out there are like oh like ah uh, how are they gonna do this like are we gonna mm-hmm. see them right uh you know uh like uh, this is uh, like 16 pictures of coal that make you uh, like, and that's peak bestie or like, yes. like, like kind of a buzzfeedy style combined with their like, you know, pro uh, like coal mining, uh, pro big business uh, kind of agenda. I think that it, Look, I think there is something that they could do, which I think there is a, you know, a young audience who might even be kind of like socially progressive, you know, that they, they don't mm-hmm. want people to be, you know, they're like the, the, they're maybe progressive on things like indigenous issues. Maybe they want a bit more climate change kind of action or at least the kind right. of going through the movements of it. But, but aren't uh, particularly woke, for example, or aren't no, aligned no, with the kind of woke leftism. Exactly. And, and, and a kind of, I guess... Um, you know, receptive to this idea of, oh, like, you know, it is pretty, like, you know, what work culture and, like, can I get cancelled for saying the wrong thing? Which is always, like, kind of, you know, super exaggerated. I mean, like, who actually you know, gets cancelled. But by playing to that audience, by kind of having this young conservative um, 
uh, I guess, tilt. Mm-hmm. I think there, there is a potential there. I think people probably shouldn't underestimate this. I think the question is, how can they pull this off without seeming like that G- uh, Steve Buscemi meme where he's <laughs> just walking and p- pretending to be a high schooler? You know, um, it's just that. Uh, look, how do it's you do doable. It, kids? <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> how do you not get that tone? Look, for example, one of my favorite satire websites, not because it's particularly funny, but uh, although from time to time it does manage to do some funny things, is... Uh, the Babylon Bee. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a I Christian have. conservative, you know, um, new satire website. And sometimes they actually manage to be pretty funny about some things. And sometimes, of course, it's just, you know, punching for the sake of punching. But um, there is space here, I think, which is currently not, which is currently maybe being filled by Joe Rogan's podcast, mm-hmm. which uh, clearly they've realized that they need to monetize somehow and earn some more advertising revenue from. So it'll be curious to see how it goes. Yeah, Are you going to apply for the job? Oh, absolutely. I think I would be an <laughs> exceptional youth editor for the Oz. I think, you know, again, I'm a, I, I know, you know, news well and its its audience. And I think there's no mm-hmm. other person. I'm actually, I, I think a good kind of parallel or, or someone good that they could learn from if they want to be successful is something like the Daily Caller, which is a publication that was launched by Tucker Carlson in the US. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it combines that kind of, um, you know, right-wing culture warrior stuff that is a little bit kind of social and does really well on social media. So I'm like looking at them right now, you know, their, their top stories are McAuliffe skips pair of North Virginia campaign events without explanation. So that's about there's a Virginia uh, governor's election at the moment. That's really contested and that's kind of, you know, anti-Democrat. Then there's the next one is Amazon driver fired after woman in tiny black dress is caught sneaking out of truck. Uh, And then what, and then the next one is like one of Trump's most, prominent GOP critics announces retirement. So we see there that there's, you know, that approach to politics, you know, there's clearly yes. an interest in it, uh, but, you know, like talking about Trump, that's obviously very social, very engaged, but it, it mixes up with a bit of what we call like social news, you know, these these little stories that just do so well on social uh, that also kind of, you know, again, always have that bent. I can see them doing something like that. I, I think that people saying that, oh, this is going to be a failure and it's going to be, you know, Paul Kelly, uh, you know, uh, like yeah. trying to write to young people. I think it's a little bit short-sighted. Look, I think at the end of the day, given the revenue increase, the most the fact that you know this was the most profitable year for News Corp in a while, um, shows that they kind of know what they're doing, whether we like to admit or not, when it comes to making marketable products. And the other thing that I think is worthwhile over here is in Australia particularly, which is the market we're talking about here, there isn't enough content aimed towards young people. Our, our media is notoriously mm. for the old by the old mm-hmm. um and you know and you see that across the board in left and right media you know from the abc and the many times it's been criticized for creating content that is just out of touch to you know the age to channel 9 to channel 10 to a, the news scope and everyone like that so any effort to kind of bring more youth content into the space is very good because youth content begets youth content hopefully yeah totally. um, i can even yes, actually so. share a, a little scoop i don't think it's actually been reported anywhere i know mm. that the abc is actually canceling it, its daily youth focused or, or you know millennial focused podcast right, called life. the signal uh, oh, okay. and, and they used mm-hmm. to have abc life which became abc everyone but mm-hmm. like it's interesting that that critics of of um 
uh, of the ABC have focused, and you know, a lot of those people in News Corp have focused on ABC Life, and and then also, you know, the Signal is being re-launched. Uh, my understanding is as a, a podcast, uh, daily news podcast, focused at kind of older people. There mm-hmm. is a young audience there that, if you know, News Corp wants to continue its role as a major media company, that they could actually try and go and get. And you know, like particularly the ABC focuses on different things. They're like, we get him in early, we get them interested in yeah. stuff, and then we send them along the pipeline to enjoy all of our other stuff, like the yours, like no, Sky News, etc. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's smart. You know, uh, right now, places like the ABC and, and, and even uh, News Corp for so long have been focused on fighting for that space to be the last thing someone in an aged care facility listens to before life, ta- you know, flee, flees their grasp. <laughs> it would be nice for them to kind of focus on some other audience just for a brief moment. <laughs> So this week, as always, we have our Good News Corp and Bad News Corp segment where we look at something good that News Corp has done and something bad that News Corp has done. And to this, well, this week, I think we've done this maybe once before, Cam. I want to cheat a little bit and present the exact same story for both Good News Corp and Ooh. Bad News Corp. Now, as you might have known, um, if you paid attention to the news at all this week and were able to get past Gladys Berejiklian's ICAC hearing, um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison released the Australian plan, um, which was our plan for, you know, net zero by 2050. Um, Some people have noticed it wasn't a plan, more of a vibe, maybe a bit of an outline of a plan. There's more clip art in the plan than actual words. But um, it was a plan and he presented the plan and he was quite proud of having presented the plan. Now, environmentalists and people uh, critical of the Australian government have said it is not a very good plan. It's a plan that kind of sort of just promises things that aren't ever going to happen, relies on miracles and magic and is fairly quite embarrassing. As has the exact same criticism being leveled at the government and Prime Minister Scott Morrison from Andrew Bolt. So oh. I watched Andrew Bolt's TV show. I didn't watch the TV show. I watched the clips on YouTube uh, to see. I was curious to see how, uh, you know, some of the Sky News After Dark commentators would take Scott Morrison's plan. And it's really funny how the language that he is using is very similar to the language that critics are using. So as a good news we, um, news scope, and I'll get to the bads in a second. As a good news scope is Andrew Bolt being as openly critical of this vague, nonsensical plan presented by Prime Minister Scott Morrison that relies on technologies that have not yet been invented to get us out of this magically um, existing problem. Um, you know, Andrew Bolt, I think, did a good job of critiquing and punching holes in that plan. The Prime Minister's bizarre press conference today explaining, supposedly, his new plan. You know, there's a famous uh, Australian children's book by Norman Lindsay called The Magic Pudding starring a pudding called Albert. You could eat all you like of that pudding and magic. It never got any smaller. And today, Prime Minister Scott Morrison presented his net zero plan. He called it the Australian way. And it is right in that Australian tradition of the magic pudding. Now, wow. that's the good part. The first time I think that Andrew Bolt has ever won this award. I don't think I would have yeah. predicted this when we launched it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll have exactly. to contact him. We'll send him the trophy. I'm sure he'll want to, you know, to, you know accept <laughs> it. Maybe give it a speech. It's very high honour. 
It is a very big deal. It's a very big deal. It's only given out once every week. And um, he gets the double trophy, though. He gets the double Ooh. whammy because the Bad News Corp story is the exact same segment. Because in the Bad News Corp version of the exact same segment, he you know critiques Scott Morrison's plan. But then at the end of that critique, he says, and it would have been worse under Labour because this plan <laughs> is useless because it wastes your money. Labour would waste twice as much money. And I started thinking, maybe there's a secondary 4D chess game possibly being played here, which is this is a signal to critics of climate change. You know, climate change deniers, for example, with whom Andrew Bolt is very popular, that don't worry, the government is still on your side. This plan is a sham. Scott Morrison isn't actually going to be doing anything by criticizing and attacking Scott Morrison's plan. It's a defense of Scott Morrison's anti-climate change, anti-environmental policies. Interesting. So it's <laughs> this is the false flag of climate right? Oh it's my exciting God. and interesting as a look. A, maybe I'm seeing patterns where there are none, but you know, I would also argue that history has shown that sometimes these do, things do play out in certain ways in Australian media. And um, it, regardless, it's a really interesting clip to listen to. Congratulations to Andrew Bolt. Uh, I think he he might be our first dual winner. It's uh, a rare yeah. honor, but one I'm sure he'll uh, he'll treasure. Okay, so now we're joined by Jane Hansen, who is a reporter for News Corp in New South Wales. She has written for now more than a decade about vaccines, about anti-vaxxers, and is one of the key people behind News Corp's No Jab, No Play campaign, which really kicked off in the early part of the 2010s, but has been running since then, and I think has continued into News Corp's pretty pro Uh, vaccine stance. I wanted to speak to her about what it was like to be part of this campaign to to use the power of a media company to drive people towards something, you know, that believes in science and to drive something that hopefully saves lives. Uh, Jane, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Jane, can you tell us about your career? Uh, Well, primarily I was a broadcast journalist um, for most of my career at Channel 7 and Channel 9. And then after I had my um, my child, you know, just I was working for the Sunday program. They axed the Sunday program, um, which was, you know, just a brilliant program. Mm. And um, I just morphed, reinvented into print journalism because uh, it was easy to work from home with a kid. Just one of the things that women do to accommodate their kids. Jane, you've been covering vaccines and anti-vaxxers for a long time, you know, a lot of people have given it more attention, I think, lately, but you really are an OG on this. When did you first start being so interested in it? Well, I'm old enough to have reported on Andrew Wakefield's fraud, now fraud. Really? Wow. Um, Can you explain that for people who don't know? Well, back in 1998, I was working for A Current Affair and, you know, this paper came out in The Lancet where this very esteemed doctor had linked the MMR vaccine um, with a bowel condition that supposedly caused autism. And there was, you know, ramifications all throughout the world um, plummeting vaccination levels with MMR as a result. And, of course, it was only a few years later that it all started to unravel, that we slowly found out via Brian Deere, um, a, a UK journalist, that Andrew Wakefield was actually on the payroll of, of a lawyer who was representing the, the 12 children in that trial. Mm. And he was actually, 
he, he was charging this lawyer 150 pound an hour. So he, without telling anyone, especially not the Lancet or, or the Royal Free, where he did all these tests um, on these children, he didn't tell them he was on the payroll. In fact, he earned um, the equivalent of 800,000 Australian dollars doing that study. But the lawyer dictated the terms of the study and basically said, you have to find this, otherwise we won't get... Um, we won't get legal aid. And so this all came out in the documents after uh, Brian Deere did a freedom of information search. And so it goes down as one of the the, the biggest medical and scientific frauds of, of, of all history. And, of course, um, his legacy is still that anti-vaxxers think he's a, a messiah. They still run with the uh, vaccine causes autism line. And it is just the biggest load of, of BS. So... Um, one, I was very interested from, from a young journalist perspective um, back then, but um, I also had a, a very personal experience um, with vaccination. I had a very, very sick little baby in uh, intensive care in 2004 in the Children's Hospital at Westmead, and um, he, he was born premature and he had chronic lung disease, and, you know, he unfortunately he didn't make it. But in those nine weeks that I was in that intensive care unit, this beautiful chubby six-month-old who was the same age as my my tiny little boy came in and this baby had pneumococcal meningitis and that beautiful chubby baby was in the um, cubicle next door just we were just cut off by glass so I got to witness the whole thing and that little baby was dead within 24 hours and the following year in 2005 they brought in the pneumococcal um, vaccination and about 20 kids used to die of this every year. But they, they brought that vaccina- vaccination in in 2005 and the following year um, disease dropped by 90%. So, you know, that's 20 children that didn't die each year. For how long now? It's over 200 kids that didn't die. And that just, to me, was, was remarkable. And I, I've just been so interested in the science of vaccination since then. And then, of course, I'm I'm a Mullumbimby girl, <laughs> um, raised there. My my dad ran the um, car dealership there, and a, and a trawler out of Brunswick Heads, and of course, it's anti vax heartland. So when I moved back from Sydney to Byron Bay after my broadcast career ended, and I started writing uh, for News Corp because they would allow me to to work from home um, in Byron Bay, which was pretty idyllic. But um, the anti vaccine. Uh, headquarters was there, the 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 AVN, the Anti-Vaccination Risks Network. They were very, very active. And while I was there, that's when um, Tony McCaffrey lost her child, Dana McCaffrey, to whooping cough because whooping cough was rife. And at this stage, I had a three-year-old and whooping cough was all around us. My kid never got it because he was vaccinated. Um, but the school, we kept, we kept getting letters every year that there, there was whooping cough in the school because the vaccination rates were back then less than 50%, less than 50% of kids age five were vaccinated. Wow. I think it's just a smidge over 50% now. I think it's like 55%. Um, but in the LHD, the, the levels have come right up to 80%. Um, so in my mind, I started thinking we really have to get a campaign to uh, address the misinformation because I think it was Sunday night, Tony McCaffrey uh, was on Sunday night with, with Mike Munro on Channel 7 and um, they'd invited Meryl Dory from the AVN to, to debate this poor bereaved parent. And I just watched Meryl spew out all this utter crap 
it sounded really legit, but it was all nonsense. And she wasn't challenged because it seemed to me that Mike Munro didn't know the ins and outs of the misinformation in the back. And so he just let her go. And I just watched Tony McCaffrey's face just just drop. And I, I thought, this, we can't let these people do that. And then in 2009, remember, like, vaccination rates were starting to drop below uh, eight, 90%. And in some places they were 70% in Sydney. So in 2013, when new data came out that vaccine levels in places like Mossman, uh, some of the some of the um, suburb, the better well healed suburbs of Melbourne, vaccination rates were starting to drop below ninety percent. That meant no herd immunity. That meant whooping cough. That meant measles were going to come back. And that's when Claire Harvey, my deputy editor, and I came up with a campaign. Let's let's use our might at News Corp to challenge this mis- misinformation. Um, so we came up. With, with the idea of a misinformation, you know, to challenge the misinformation, but, but that in itself wasn't going to work to bring vaccination levels up. So Claire dispatched me to find out what laws could we challenge Parliament or our, our politicians to change to challenge people to get their vaccinations, get their kids vaccinated. So we came up with the Private Health Act that governed childcare and um, no jab, no play, we coined that, that, that then became okay if you want to go to childcare or daycare you have to have you have to prove that your vaccination you got your vaccination information from a doctor not from facebook or anything else and we also challenged to get rid of the conscientious objector um, exemption which was which we all knew was rubbish there's medical exemptions they still exist but conscientious objection was just i don't think that my kids will be vaccinated because i choose to listen to misinformation um, even though they obviously believe it. But we thought that's got to be challenged. So no jab, no play. Um, it was debated in Parliament and it was passed um, in 2013. And all of a sudden, vaccination rates started to um, come up and they were 89% then for five-year-olds. They're now over 95%. But, you know, the the actual campaign's got a life of its own now because uh, every state followed that. Other states were were tougher. Uh, Victoria came up with one of the toughest and there was a lot of criticism from people saying look you can't deprive children of 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 um, preschool education um, which was valid but it, it it was a carrot and stick approach and and it worked it worked most people went to their doctors got proper information then decided yes okay I'll have my kids vaccinated um and then, of course, in 2015, um, the next thing we challenged was, at a federal level, um, no jab, no pay, which was about uh, family ta- tax benefit A and the child care um, benefit, child care rebate and the child care benefit. If you didn't want to vaccinate your kids, why should you get the community's money if you essentially didn't want to be part of the community? Um and yeah, well, some lots of people have criticised it, but even some of the early critics have acknowledged that it's been a powerful uh, tool in um, getting kids vaccinated. Jane, do you know? I'm putting you on the spot. I read Sam Maiden write about. Uh, I think that what she said: the truth was behind why Scott Morrison, now our, our current prime minister, got behind no jab, no pay policy. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember that story? 
Uh, yes, yeah, so Sam Sam had to go and explain to him what it was about, what was at stake. And, um, yeah, she, she, she sort of did that story and bang, no jab, no play came about. Pauline Hanson was also, um, Pauline Hanson in 2015, she was starting to pander to the anti-vaccine movement and saying it was unfair, et cetera. And Malcolm Turnbull at the time then decided he would meet with Tony McCaffrey and Tony McCaffrey met with him. She explained what was at stake, how her baby had picked up whooping cough in a daycare centre because her daycare centre where she was dropping off her older child, she had four three-week-old Dana in her arms, that daycare centre was rife with whooping cough and she didn't know. So in and about all of that, um, no jab, no pay became legislation. When Sam Maiden writes about it, she kind of says that uh, she was speaking to Scott Morrison, who was doing this interview with her, and he was apparently very grumpy, and she kind of like pressed him on no jab, no pay. And mm. then I think she ended up writing something that was saying that he didn't rule it out. Uh, and so, you know, she said, well, she reported that. She said that was kind of the most interesting thing that came out of an interview. Didn't speak very highly of it. Mm. And then afterwards, uh, so he gave her a, a ring and said, I didn't really like how you did that. You know, I think that was unfair. And she said, well, that's what you said. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, he came out and announced it as a policy, not only, you know, getting behind it, you know, with a like full-throatedly, but also even using some of the kind of rhetoric like the exact kind of phrasing that she used it showing that like you know he's obviously clearly paying attention to this kind of stuff yeah well there's no there's no loss of votes in it no absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think also also um like claire harvey had organized um a, a news poll on on the issue and it just was a vote winner mm. because they're much anti-vaxxers are much maligned oh yeah and they're, and they're small, I think, than people realize. They're kind noisy. Of, they're noisy. They get a lot of attention. And, um, you know, like as someone who's not covered them anywhere near as much as you, you know, sometimes I do think about why I'm covering them. They're like obviously interesting at the moment. But it does the sheer amount of courage I'm giving to them, you know, almost like inflate how much there is. And that's why I personally always try to be like, they are a, a small minority people who make a lot of noise. Let's not overinflate this. Yes, they're, you know, it's dangerous having them in the community. It's dangerous because they, you know, can potentially spread disease, but also they encourage other people as well. But always just at least, you know, trying to keep it in perspective that they, are, like most people do the right thing. Most of the people go and do this, not just for themselves, but also for their communities as well. Well, I'm actually amazed that we're now sitting in New South Wales. We're sitting around 94% first jab. It's and huge. That, you know, because the pandemic was the perfect storm for anti-vaxxers. It gave them, I mean, one, it triggered them enormously because vaccination was the only way out of this. Um, and two, it, 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 they could, they could capitalise on the fear mm. of the unknown, which has always been, you know, their currency. Um and then, of course, they've got these platforms now with with um, you know live streaming, and you know they they look they look louder, they look bigger than what they are. Mm. and they have been trying to co opt other people into their movement, the far right, the union movement, just just this mishmash of of people. And I actually think after no jab, no pay and play, that they were actually starting to diminish until the pandemic came along mm. and uh, that reinvigorated the movement somewhat. But still, I'm so 
pleased with the majority of Australians that are choosing to see it for what it is, uh, which is misinformation and, and mischief. Absolutely. Now, I want to... Um... I, I wanted to ask something specific about the reporting that you do that I think is very smart. And you alluded to this with the Andrew Wakefield story. One thing that I've liked that you, you do is when you're talking about anti-vaxxers or in, throughout your coverage, you look at where they're making money. Like, mm. you know, you follow follow the money, a classic like journalism, I guess, yeah. piece of advice that they get. And you kind of, what you show is that time and time again, that these aren't people who are just trying to often spread the good word. You know, they really believe it but often that they have a financial interest in it as well. They're all on the grift. It's amazing. They've all got their, their hat out. I mean, it's extraordinary how much money's in it. I mean, Andrew Wakefield's documentary, Vaxxed, which, you know, he tries to redeem himself, that, that made $1.63 million in 2016. There's huge money in misinformation. Mm-hmm. And you end up dating Elle McPherson as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing, that whole wellness movement too, um, oh. it's – it's very much embedded there. It, the Australian Vaccination Network, they, they exist on um, on handouts. Um, I obtained some of the um, tax returns that they've been really cracked down on now, but, you know, they were turning over about $300,000 as a mm. non-profit. Um, so it, it really bought a lifestyle for Meryl Dory to, mm. to run around in this bus with her volunteers Um you know, listening to people's vaccine injuries um, while she's pretty much getting paid for it by by her donors. Um, and and that, that's the other thing about these people is they, they exploit people's grief. Okay, mm-hmm. so t- children do die and children do get injured from all sorts of things, mainly viruses and, and you know, vaccine-preventable diseases. But, you know, kids with autism, you know, they'll come and tell their their uh, vaccine injury story. And I've been watching some of the stuff that, that, that the AVN has been putting up on Facebook and I cannot believe they're still on Facebook. Mm. Um, you know, these people saying, oh, my, children, my child had autism and, you know, he started displaying um, symptoms at nine months, even before he'd had his MMR vaccine. Like mm. they just don't even apply any critical questions to it at that point. Like, well, the child hadn't had his MMR vaccine at that point, but he was... You're blaming that now, you know. That it's it's not journalism. It's it's campaigning. Yeah. And um, they let these people believe these parents believe that they made some dreadful decision, uh, which has harmed their child. Which of course we all know is rubbish. Another woman went in there and said how her child died of sudden infant death syndrome. Well, what we know about sudden in- infant death syndrome now is that many, many, many of the cases are actually suffocations. Uh, co-sleeping is is a, is a problem. Um, many are also half half of all the sudden and unexplained deaths in in childhood are from an illness um, that you know has been hard to detect beforehand. And other points to um, an undeveloped area of the brain called the hippocampus. So there's 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 biological explanations for it. But if your child dies, you know, two weeks after receiving a vaccine at, at three months of age, of course you're going to question the vaccines. But what these anti-vaxxers do is take that and and use it, use that child as a poster child for a vaccine injury and, and then forever consign that mother to the, the, the guilt of getting her child vaccinated. It's just hideous. There was another child called Chase who um, was born and very quickly started fitting shortly after um, well, he hadn't been vaccinated. He'd had the vitamin K, 
that's all. And they were blaming the vitamin K, like they were blaming a vitamin for this child's epilepsy, which the child has epilepsy. Um, and they used that child as a, as a poster child for vaccine injury. And that, and that mother ended up having that child taken off her because she was living, living, listening to the anti-vaxxers and feeding the child cannabis oil and not giving him the nutrition through his peg. You know, she lost her kid. So they, they cause irreparable damage. And then you look at the Taylor Wintersteins and the um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who, who, who I think is making around $32 million with Oof. the Child Health Defence. That's what Child Health Defence Network is, is worth, $32 million Which in America. A, it's a US-based anti US based, and that's, yeah. And, and I think um, uh, one outfit did a study as, as to where all the misinformation was coming from on Facebook and Child Health Defence was one of the main funders of misinformation, vaccine misinformation. But he and Taylor Winterstein went to Samoa six months before, you know, 83 children died of of measles. Um, so they're just, they're just dangerous people. So uh, before I let you go, Jane, I just want to ask a, a f- few other questions. I mean, uh, the elephant in the room, of course, is News Corp's opinion columnists who have at times, I think, stoked vaccine hesitancy and you know we've had ACMA at least once say that you know there was a Sky News you know Alan Jones uh, spread misinformation about it I'm not going to ask you to comment on that kind of stuff and I want to like one of the reasons I want to get you on is to try and give a full picture of, of how the company you know the, the, the like the variety of views and kind of different uh, uh, things that come out of the, the broad church that is News Corp I, I want to ask do you ever have to battle with perceptions whether right or wrong that come with working for news you know when you're interacting with people online when you're trying to uh, even cover this stuff for your job yes of course yes i have yeah alan jones and i have had words on this this issue um you know i've challenged him on on um the vaccination issue i got him to admit that he had been double jabbed um but you know on his he he got hammered by all these anti-vaccine fans saying that he'd actually been too soft on me (laughs) which i thought was pretty (laughs) funny because alan doesn't have a track record of being soft on women <laughs> but anyway look like the columnists um they have their opinions they're opinion writers and um i like to stick to the facts <laughs> and in terms of autonomy you know claire and i came up with no jab no play and sam of course was worth was working with us with there were a bunch of journalists working on it we had autonomy complete autonomy on that but we do have an editorial position that we are pro-vaccine in news call um, some of that gets undone by by uh, people on Sky After Dark, um, but we just I just go back to sticking to the facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stick no. to the facts. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like we do see the company actually does believe in vaccine stuff because there's a you know there's a mandate coming in for all people who want to go into the buildings to have it. So yep. it, it like and and uh, uh, like I'll I'll let you and the audience know something that I've heard from people who even work. For for uh, you know, parts of of the company saying that you know that they, they do feel um, upset that some small parts of the company get a lot more attention than others when it comes to this stuff. Now, yes, I, 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 I push back on that and say, well, 
some of the parts of the company get more attention because they are the louder voices. And, and that's partly because of the positions they have in the company, but also due to the fact that like, you know, things like Facebook and YouTube, uh, you know, reward these kinds of points of view, uh, view and show them to more people. Um, I, I think what like, I just kind of think, and you know, this, this podcast is undeniably critical at times, but the, the also point of this is to be like, when the company is doing good work, when there are people in the company who are doing good work of which there are many, we should also say this is great stuff. And and that's why I wanted to have you on, Jane, because I, I, I have, you know, I've personally looked up to your reporting. I think it's it's really great. And I think it shows that, you know, we can understand the company, like any company, you know, is complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've worked for Channel 9, Channel 10, Channel 7, ABC, Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, um, Sunday Telegraph. I mean, to me, it's all the same job. You've, you've got the company around you that you have to exist in. Um, you know, I, I've been very critical of Channel 9 in the past, um, specifically with their treatment of women. But, um, you know, journalism's journalism. You've got to work where you can get paid. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess we're, we, we sort of um, prostitute ourselves like that in a way, don't we? We work for whoever will pay us well um, and, and stick to um, my charter, which is just stick to the evidence base, stick, mm-hmm. to, stick to the job. Um, and do it well. And I'm, I'm happy to, really happy to push back on some some other opinion writers that are, are writing stuff that's contrary to yeah. uh, pro-vaccine. You know, that's my job. How, how do you do it? Do you do, you do it? Uh, like, I, I mean, just write, mentioned... a, write a story countering it. Okay. And, and you think like that, I mean, how do you think that works in the end? Sorry about the golden retriever. <laughs> in the <background. laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> how do you think that, that all shakes out? Uh, I don't know. I haven't been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let, I, I hope let's keep it that way. So, we, Jay, we might uh, finish it there. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hi to your dog as well. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, sorry about that. No, no, about no, yeah. no, it's a problem. Thank you so much. And and, and um, I really appreciate your reporting on this. I think you do great work. Yes, thank you. And um, I'll just go and shut Goldie up now. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to us. If you haven't already subscribed, please, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, basically anywhere you get a podcast, we are there. The most fun that we're having, though, is on our Facebook page. That's at the Murdocracy Podcast Facebook group. And join the page where everyone's posting stories about Newscope and having discussions about Newscope and their wider role in society. It's a really fun community. And also, of course, we have launched patreon.com slash Murdocracy. That's M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. It's our plea for a little bit of financial support so we can continue doing this. In the meantime, thank you so much to Kevin McLeod for the theme music, ABC for the archival footage of Rupert Murdoch for the intro, Ruby Innes for our artwork. And of course, thank you to you, Cam Wilson. Thank you so much, Sammy Shah. Uh, We'll catch you next week. Enjoy. Enjoy.